You can be so discerning, right, in your own mind, you're just scrupulously checking every single jot and tittle, that you're not receiving the word with all eagerness. But the, the Bereans did both. The Bereans received the word with all eagerness, but they also checked the scriptures. They were also discerning. They just didn't accept everything that was said. And so how do you maintain the Berean balance, as I'm calling it? First and foremost, I think when, when, for instance, when you come to church, first and foremost, on your mind needs to, needs to be a thankfulness to God that you even have a church to come to, that, that we have Bibles to even search. I mean, th- this, over the history of mankind in general, or even, the, even since the coming of Christ, to have a copy of the Scriptures is... It's a luxury, right? The fact that we can even search the scriptures and see if what we're... St- this is and something that's good for you. And I know I've mentioned it before because I remember mentioning it. But, I mean, you can go to YouTube and you can find videos of, for instance, there, there's, there's tribes where, who have never had... They've had missionaries. They've heard the gospel. They're Christians, but they've never had the Bible translated into their uh, languages. And they have video of... Uh, I'm not sure which society... Uh, which missionary group translated for this. I'm thinking of one in particular. It's, it's just an amazing video to watch because you see how we should feel. You can see it. They're, they're feeling it. They still, this is still amazing that they have this. This is not amazing to us anymore. We're just, I've got a thousands of these. This is not crazy. It should be. Um, but there's video of these tribes with the plane coming in. They know this is the day we're going to receive our Bibles in our own language. We'll all have them. And these missionaries show up with boxes of Bibles and they, I mean, it's, it's, there's rejoicing. There's, I mean, it's a ceremony. They're singing, they're, they're crying, they're thanking God, they're praying because they get, and they get Bibles and they're reading them. It's, it's, we need to watch those things. Like, that's what we need to see to remember how thankful we should be for even having the Bible, being thankful that we can come to a church like this where, where we, this is a, this is a good, safe place to, to hear the Bible taught, right? Like, you should not be uneasy, right? This is, we have unity in the gospel. We have unity in, in a Christ-centered view of the scriptures. We have unity in the solas of the Reformation. All of these primary doctrines, like you should come to church excited. Not that, oh, I might hear something, you know, Jason's going to say something weird about Galatia or something. You know, that's not what you should be thinking. You should be, oh, wow, we get to hear the word of God preached today. That's... That's what we should be thinking. And, and then, of course, there's a time. Uh, there's, of course, a time and a place to check, check what we're saying. But the primary reception of the Bereans was to start with receiving the word with all eagerness. Okay, well, as you might have guessed, I'm going to have you open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Hopefully everybody's got their hiking boots on. Hopefully everybody's well hydrated because we are going to continue on this missionary journey with the Apostle Paul and his companions. Acts chapter 17. I'm just going to read verses 2 and 3 to kind of introduce us to this chapter. Acts chapter 17, 
verse 2. It says, And when Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And he was saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Let's pray. Well, Father, first and foremost, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you that we have these accounts of the missionary work of Paul and these other brothers, and we thank you that we have the message that they preached. We thank you that we have the gospel. We thank you that we can see how it is that you have placed Christ in your word and how it is we are to think of them. And we thank you that, that you are glorified in all of these things, that all of these things are, are meant first and foremost for your glory. And we thank you for your grace. We thank you that we get to partake in some of these, some of these good things that are yours, that we get to partake in them, that we will, that we will even be with you on that day, Lord, we, we thank you for these good things. We thank you for your grace. Bless the preaching of your word today, Lord. Bless our time in the book of Acts. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, Acts chapter 17, which means we just finished Acts chapter 16, where we're knee-deep in the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul and his companions. Um, at this point, his companions are Silas, Timothy, and who's the other one? The, maybe the most significant one when you're reading the book of Acts. Luke. Luke wrote the book of Acts. Luke is actually with the missionaries during this section of the journey. We're actually going to lose Luke. Um, at the end of this journey for a little while, but we'll see him again. But these are the missionaries. If you remember, the whole point, um, when Paul got the idea to start this missionary journey, he said, um, originally he said to Barnabas, if you remember, but he said, let's, let's set out on another journey and let's go around and let's strengthen the churches that we, that we originally planted. So that was Paul's aim, was just to kind of go back through Galatia uh, revisit the churches that he planted. But if you remember, Paul had this, uh, this vision. A man from Macedonia appeared to him saying, come help us. And so Paul actually redirected the missionary route, and he headed farther west than they've ever been. He actually came into Macedonia, which is modern-day Europe. And that's where we saw him last time enter the city of Philippi, where we saw the conversion of Lydia, and her household, and the Philippian jailer, his household, were also saved and baptized. And so after that, they moved south. They moved south. Um, that's where they picked up Luke. And so now this is the group that we have. And today, uh, Paul and the gang are going to leave Philippi. They're going to come to two well-known cities. We're going we're gonna to look at the missionary endeavors in Thessalonica and Berea. 
Thessalonica and Berea, and we, we know about these cities. They are well known to us, but let's, let's refresh our memory as we look at chapter 17 and see, see what the Lord had in store for uh, Paul and his gang here in these places. So Acts chapter 17, verse 1. It says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there there was a synagogue of the Jews. So we're in Thessalonica. This is a city you should be familiar with, right? Because Paul's going to write two letters to them. We have both of those epistles. Um, there's, there's churches here. And there was a synagogue there, it said, in Thessalonica. And so because there was a synagogue, verse 2, Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to do two things, to suffer and to rise from the dead. And he was saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So Paul finds a synagogue, and the Jews there in the synagogue, they have the Scriptures, they have the Old Testament. And so Paul loves to go into the synagogue first. He loves to go where the Word of God is already there, where he kind of has this common ground with these people, and he can explain directly from the Scriptures. He can give evidence that he can prove that Jesus is their Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the one these Jews should be looking for. They have the scriptures, and so Paul goes there first. And this always comes to my mind when I think about Paul doing this. I, this is a lot of the reason that I prefer, that I, that I rather enjoy um, evangelizing folks like the Roman Catholics or, or even Christian cults who at least say that the Bible is the Word of God. I, I like those guys better. To me, it's easier. It's one last step you got to work through them with. But if somebody's saying, oh, no, I believe this is the Word of God, I love that because we can go right to the... That's where I want it. That should be your aim in evangelism is to get into the Word of God because the Bible says that's what causes people to be born again. It's the gospel here that causes to be people born again. I'm you know, with the atheist, a lot of times you're getting into a lot of psychology, a lot of, you know, other scientific questions. But the goal is to get here. So if somebody's already saying, like the Catholics do, oh, no, we believe the, this is the Word of God. I love that because, well, let's get right into the Word of God. And it seems like Paul, Paul appreciates this advantage. And so we head straight to the synagogue to preach Jesus as the Christ. And as you all are aware, many of the Jews do not accept Jesus as being the Christ. Um, one of the big stumbling blocks, one of the, the main aspects of, of their stumbling over the rock is that the Messiah, that Jesus suffered, that Jesus was crucified. This, is, this was not the expectation. This is, the suffering of Jesus is, is kind of like a mis-aspect of the messianic pro uh, prophecies that the Jews weren't looking for. The Jews were expecting a, uh, a conquering king. That's what they were looking for. That's what they desired. They weren't looking for a suffering servant, but ironically, Jesus is both. Jesus is a conquering king, 
and he conquered through suffering. And so Paul comes into this synagogue. It says he's arguing for those two things from the scriptures. He's arguing that the Christ must suffer and that the Christ resurrected from the dead. And because um, Luke didn't choose in, in, in Acts chapter 17 to kind of give us the details of what Paul was explaining, what text he went to, I thought it would be helpful. Flip back to Acts chapter 13 because Luke did choose in Acts chapter 13 to give us a lot more of Paul's scriptural arguments. And we can see what texts that uh, Paul goes to to argue for not only the resurrection, which Acts chapter 13, that was Paul's first sermon, if you remember, that's recorded. Um, it's predominantly focused around his scriptural arguments for the resurrection, but you also, he has a, a big introduction before he gets to the resurrection, which I'm going to argue is, is the text that Paul would have been pointing to, to show these Jews that the Christ must suffer. I asked a, a brother at work, I said, uh, as I was thinking about this text, he saw me kind of cheating and studying at work for this sermon and said, what are you studying I said, oh, I'm trying to figure out how the Old Testament scriptures uh, prove that Jesus must suffer and resurrect from the dead. And I asked him, because this guy knows his Bible. I said, what scriptures would you go to to prove that uh, Jesus must suffer, that the Messiah would suffer? And he had a few, you know, you probably have a couple off the top of your head, like, um, you know, Isaiah 53, probably, right? Psalm 22, that length, the piercing of his hands and his feet. Um, but I think he was, I think he had run out there, right? But the picture that we get in scriptures, that all the scriptures, that Paul was going to the scriptures, plural, not just maybe just one or two isolated kind of proof texts, but all of the scriptures pointed to the suffering of Christ. And so how do the scriptures do that? If we can think of only but a few explicit passages uh, that teach about Christ's suffering. How do all of the scriptures tell us about Christ's suffering? So let's just look in Acts chapter 13. Like I said, this is where Luke devoted a lot of text to actually what uh, Paul was saying in the synagogue. And look at the subjects here. I'm going to pick up in verse 17. Look at verse 17 because... Here Paul starts recounting what seems like, it's kind of like Stephen's sermon. Stephen just seems like he's recalling the sermon before he was stoned, just the history of Israel, but I think there's, there's more to it. So what does Paul mention in Acts chapter 13, verse 17 here? The first thing he talks about are the people of Israel as a whole. But then he references their, their suffering, their stay in Egypt, verse 18, he mentions the, the 40 years of their suffering in the wilderness. Um, both of these things, the scripture points to as correlating to the life of Jesus. Um, Hosea 11, referring to the Exodus, how God delivered his people from, in the Exodus, Hosea recalls that account and says, of God, of God saying, out of Egypt I called my son. Israel, as a people, were referred to as the son of God. 
interesting designation for those people, and you, and you can see why God would call them that. But at that point, through the, uh, through the Exodus, God called his son out of Egypt. And then what do we see in Matthew chapter 2 when Jesus is, is, is fleeing the suffering under Herod and God tells his parents, hey, it's okay to bring him back to Israel. Matthew quotes Hosea 11 saying, out of Egypt I called my son. And so we see this, this picture, this type we're talking about typology now, and I think Kinsey uses the language, too, with Hebrews a lot, rightfully so. Um, but typology is what we're saying, is where the Old Testament paints pictures of Christ, think these types of Christ that are going to be ultimately fulfilled in the person of Christ. In Israel, the Bible says, Matthew says in Matthew chapter 2, that the people of Israel and through the Exodus was a type, a picture of Christ. And here, Paul mentions they were 40 years of, in the wilderness, suffering in the wilderness. Well, again, Matthew, when Jesus gets called out into the wilderness and is, and is under the temptations of Satan, in essence, suffering under the temptations of Satan, there's a direct parallel because Jesus is there for 40 days. And so... All the commentators point out that, that parallel of, of Israel being in the wilderness for 40 years, Jesus being in the wilderness for 40 days, both under the temptations of Satan. And so you see the people of Israel, and uh, Paul doesn't fail to mention these realities. Look at verse 20. Here Paul mentions uh, God providing the judges for Israel. And you can think back how these judges were, in essence, uh, lowercase s saviors for the people of Israel. These judges were supposed to lead. They were supposed to defend. They were supposed to save the people of Israel from their enemies. And these judges were under constant suffering. They were under constant fighting from the people, the Gentiles in the world. They're constantly fighting the fickleness of the people of Israel, the same things Jesus had to deal with. Jesus dealt with the Gentiles, was ultimately killed by them, and he constantly dealt with the fickleness of the people of Israel. What else does Paul mention in his sermon? Remember, I'm saying he's, he's using the, he would have argued from these texts for the, for the reality that the Christ must suffer. Verse 22, he brings up King David. King David, and surely if anybody was a type of Christ, King David was a type of the greater King to come, King David was fighting with God's enemies outside of Israel, and he was fighting at times with the people of Israel. He was at a time run outside of Jerusalem in an attempt to kill him at one point, and Jesus was taken outside of Jerusalem and was killed, and Jesus was the son of David. That was how people, ref even the cripples, when they, this is how theologically uh, in, or, uh, aware, even the cripples were uh, sitting outside of the temple. This is how theologically minded they were concerning the Messiah. They, they had it. They understood the typology because when they saw Jesus and they saw his miracles, they said, son of David, heal me. They referred to, they knew that he was this coming Messiah, that he was this, this greater David. 
The last point concerning the suffering of Christ. Look at verse 29. It gets, he kind of brings it home here. Verse 29, Paul says, And when they had carried out all that was written of him. See how Paul says that the Messiah's sufferings were written of him? He says, Then they took him down from the tree. Why a tree? Well, because in Deuteronomy 21, Cursed is everyone who hangs from a tree. And so I'm arguing that I don't think all of these historical facts that Paul's just seemingly mentioning in the synagogue are just arbitrary historical facts. I think these are not just coincidental references. Paul's making connections. I mean, if you think about uh, Galatians, if you remember, Paul makes in Galatians 3 that direct connection to Christ being a curse for us, and cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He quotes Deuteronomy. So Paul is mentioning all of these texts. He's, 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 he's bringing to remembrance to these Jews the history of Israel, the history of their people, and all of these pictures, all of these types of Christ's suffering. Now, Paul's Paul's going to get very explicit. I, I think his, his goal in, in Acts chapter 13 in this sermon was to get to the resurrection because that's where he gets. And let's see how Paul argues for the resurrection from the Old Testament. Look, look at verse 30 now. Acts 13 verse 30. There it says, But God raised him from the dead... And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this is the promise of God. Where do we find the promises of God? Or where did those Jews find them in the Old Testament? This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, and here's Paul's first art, biblical argument, his first proof text for the resurrection from the second psalm. He says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And you probably don't remember, because I don't remember my own sermon from Acts chapter 13, but how is that an argument for the resurrection of, of Jesus? Paul's arguing for the resurrection of Jesus. He goes to Psalm 2 and says, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Interesting, right? That's not on the face of it how we would understand that to be a resurrection text. But Paul points to these Jews and assumes they understand the meaning. Well, the reason you can see it in light of the resurrection is because Psalm chapter 2 is what is known as a coronation psalm. And the coronation psalms were saying every time Israel uh, raised up a new king. And so as King David, for instance, would have ascended the throne, they would have been singing Psalm chapter 2, a song of ascension. As he ascended the throne, this is the song that would have been sung. And so for Paul, as a king is raised to the throne in Israel this is just an earthly picture of Jesus' ascension to the right hand of the Father. And to ascend to the right hand uh, necessitates a resurrection. 
What other text does he have? Verse 34. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, I like that language, as for the fact. This is how Paul thinks of the resurrection fact. He raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way, and he quotes Isaiah 55, 3. I will give to you the holy and sure blessings of David. That's a messianic uh, text, Isaiah 55, right in the middle of that messianic section. And God, speaking to his Messiah, says, I will give you the holy and sure, the holy and sure blessings of David. What are the blessings? What are the holy and sure blessings of David? Well, this is surely a reference to 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's known by theologians as, as this section that is it, it, encompassing the Davidic covenant, the covenant that God made with David where he promised him that one of his seed, one of David's descendants, would sit on his throne forever. God promised to David that one of David's descendants would sit on David's throne forever. So how's that an argument for the resurrection? Well, how can you sit on a throne and reign forever? Again, it, it necessitates the resurrection. In order to reign forever, you must live forever. In order to live forever, by implication, it assumes a resurrection from the dead. Last point, last text from Paul, arguing for the resurrection in the synagogue, verse 35. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, this time it's Psalm 16. He says, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that, this man, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Now, to me, this is the most explicit a prophecy concerning the resurrection that Paul mentions. The Holy One will not see decay. Uh, the Holy One is, is just a, an obvious reference to the promised one, to the Messiah. It's, it's, it's a messianic label. And God said, my Holy One, my Messiah will not see corruption. And so Jesus was raised from the dead um, so that his body would not decay. And so those, as we think about, as, as Luke in chapter 17 just mentions in passing, Paul went into the synagogue and argued for the suffering and resurrection of Jesus from the scriptures. I went to Acts chapter 13 because that's, that's where we get the most evidence of, of how Paul did that. And, and we look at Paul's proof text, Paul's, Paul's biblical references and arguments that he makes. And I would just say these are, these are arguments that we can make. I mean, who, who makes better arguments? Who knows the Bible better? Um, who was filled with the Spirit more than the Apostle Paul? And so my, my assumption is that his arguments are, are good arguments, uh, some of the best arguments. I don't know that these are texts that we uh, normally think to go to if we're trying to argue with somebody and show them that Jesus is the Christ, 
But I don't think, there's a reason Luke mentioned Paul's arguments. I think we should study them, that we should learn them, that we should believe them, that this is how. Um, I think that's probably the biggest stumbling block is, is that really what God intended by saying, you are my son, today I have begotten you, right? But at that point, you're just questioning the apostolic interpretation, right? So I think this is, this is right. This is, this is what God intended um, with those Old Testament passages. So we should use them. Feel totally at liberty to argue like the Apostle Paul did, trusting that the Spirit of God will save his people. Don't, don't feel, I, I think a lot of uh, evangelists feel the necessity to stay in the philosophical, to stay in the, the scientific uh, and, the, and there's real, uh, this is God's created world, philosophy, science is God's philosophy, is God's science. Um, we can go there, that's, that's all God's things. But Paul goes here to the scriptures, and so I think that's, that's where you want to get when you're evangelizing, when you're, when you're doing apologetics, when you're out in the streets or, or with, with anybody that you know. You want to get into the Bible, and Paul does that here. So let's turn back. Acts chapter 17. So Paul preaches in the synagogue. Let's see now what are the results of Paul's preaching. Acts chapter 17, verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So Paul preached. It says some of the Jews believed, but then it says a great many of the Greeks believed. And then this interesting note that not a few of the leading women believed. Well, what does not a few mean? Well, it means a lot of them. It means a lot of the leading women of the city believed. And and we saw an example of what a you could consider a leading woman when we looked at Lydia in Philippi, this woman who, remember, she was the seller of purple. She would have, I, I actually, uh, I was listening to something else. Um, I was listening to a Lutheran pastor describe uh, the history of philosophy, of Western philosophy, and for some reason he got onto the discussion concerning the, 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 the people who sold purple and the, and the shellfish or some kind of sea creature that had to be collected that, that you could get the purple ink out of that was so rare and it was so expensive and you had to have so much to even make X amount of, a small amount of cloth and that's why it became so rare and so uh, costly. Um, but he went on and on saying like, in essence, like if this woman had access to that kind of, uh, if she was a seller of purple, she was very wealthy. She would have had a lot of money. She would have been one of the leading women in Philippi. Um, she would have been sought after for this, this purple clothing. So we see here, Paul has what we would consider very good results in Thessalonica. All of these people believe. Even some of the Jews believe. Many of the Greeks believe. Some of these leading women believe. But what seems to, I don't know that I've seen even an exception to this rule yet in Acts, but what is always the case is that when God is busy about his work, 
we see the enemy is there ready to fight against it. Look at verse 5. It says, but the Jews were jealous. The Jews were jealous. And so some Jews, it said, believed. And it did qualify by saying some, but apparently the majority did not believe. And we've seen the, the, the reality of this jealousy for the Jews when Paul and these missionaries come in and start preaching and people start believing them and start following their Christ. We've seen... We've seen the jealousy. We saw it in the Gospels with Jesus, what jealousy, what jealousy can do. And jealousy just being one of those, what would you, you could refer to it as just one of those roots of bitterness that can get inside of you, that can cause you to do things that you never thought you'd be willing to do. And jealousy has to be one of those things that you try to recognize you know, in yourself quick and be willing to stamp that out. Um, somehow we need to be happy for the, we need to be happy for Kinsey who can sing like that, not jealous, right? God's given, I mean, we say we believe in the sovereignty of God. It's one of these things I say more than obviously believe, but jealousy just goes directly against, you know, believing that God is sovereign and that he gives gifts to whom he wants. And you see something in somebody else's life and you wish you had that. Be happy for those people. Be glad that God has given people these things because God has given you exactly what you need to be who he wants you to be, not who you want to be. We want to be what? Rich, powerful, strong, live forever, all these things. That's what we want. That's not what God wants for you. That's normally not what God wants for his people. I just read the passage this morning that God has chosen the poor. Or did we just read that in James? We just read that in James, right? God has chosen the poor of this world. Um, it's, it's actually a kind of dangerous thing to desire to be one of the rich. And John Piper, for all of the weird things he said lately, one of the good things he did historically say was he mentioned how in his experience and his judgment over looking at the scriptures and looking at the history of man and people he's known, he said that... Uh, that money, that getting riches, is most likely a curse. It's not a blessing. To most people, it's a stumbling stone. It, it's something that people trip and stumble over and are given great many temptations as a result of having, having that kind of power, that kind of freedom, that kind of free time maybe, and things of that nature. And uh, I, I've never forgotten when he said that and, and kind of thought about how that could definitely be true. And that's probably the grace of God that he doesn't, that we're not all rich. Even though comparatively, I always have to qualify in saying compared to the majority of people who have ever lived on the earth, we are the rich. We are the very, very rich. We have, in essence, everything we could possibly want. I mean, I was thinking I got in poison ivy pretty bad, you know, and I'm just like, oh, like, I have like nine different remedies at the house of, for poison ivy, right? Like who in the history of mankind, right? Like they, you know, what were they doing to try to heal that? You know, probably smashing up bugs and rubbing them on there thinking, I mean, but we have all of this, all of these good things. We're spoiled rotten. So they were jealous. These at least in their mind, these law-loving Jews are jealous. And look what it causes them to do. It causes them to link up with some, of, some very evil men. 
Second part of verse 5. The Jews were jealous and they were taking some wicked men of the rabble and they formed a mob and they set the city in an uproar and they attacked the house of Jason seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Now, Jason hasn't been mentioned before. He just gets mentioned here. This is, and he might, be, he might be the Jason at the end of Romans. I'm not sure Paul mentions a Jason there. But this Jason is obviously a Christian in Thessalonica who is housing the missionaries. They're, they're probably staying at his house. Um, and so when they're looking for Paul, they're looking for Silas and Timothy, they come to Jason's house. That's what's happening here. Um, but when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And so, very similar situation to what Paul just experienced in Philippi. If you remember when he cast out that demon from that slave girl, the owners, you know, stirred up the city against, you know, made all these accusations in the city, stirred everybody up against the apostle Paul and Silas and ran them out of town, kind of threw the whole city into confusion. Same thing, same thing happens here. And Let's look at this. What is the accusation here that gets made against Paul and his crew? It says these are men who have turned the world upside down. And the fear is that they're going to turn Thessalonia upside down as well. But I, that language, uh, Jason said, uh, what's his name? Conway, Brother Conway preached a sermon on that. I'd probably highly recommend it because he could probably teach, preach a whole sermon on those five words, you know. Um, if I would have known about that, I would have listened to it. But, but it seems obvious on the face of it what, what the fear was, is that these men have heard about what the gospel and Paul have done elsewhere and that it's actually changed. It's turned the world upside down. And think about it, it's just Paul it's Paul and a couple guys. It's Paul and three guys at most who have turned the world upside down. They've, they've had such an impact in Galatia, Macedonia, such an impact that, that even though it's, you know, hyperbole, they're able to say, look what these guys have done. They've, they've turned the world upside down. And so obviously, obviously, I mean, our whole New Testament attests to their work and what, and what happened, but... This was obviously a legitimate revival breaking out that was known throughout this whole area. I mean, Thessalonia is nowhere, as we would consider, nowhere near Galatia. So the fact that these people know what all's happened, where these apostles have been, shows how much, how effective and how much change has happened. So wherever these apostles have gone, folks have been willing to abandon their ancestral traditions, their, the, the religions of their families, and they've, and they've been willing to come to Christ. Um, wherever these apostles go, people's, people's lives change. 
These people obviously must start acting different. They probably start speaking different. They probably start conducting their business different. The whole culture is affected by the growth of Christianity. It it turns the world upside down, and that's something that we obviously need in our world now. We need a revival like this. We need the gospel to spread. We need Christians' lives, people's lives to change to Christian lives to such a degree that it changes the world, that it changes our culture, that some of these laws that are now being made, some of these moral decisions that are, these judgments that are being made, these would be laughable once again. At one time, these things were laughable, unthinkable, because you had this Christian influence in a more biblical uh, biblically saturated people, and now, now all bets are off as, as people have no idea what God has said. People are taught that God is not real. People are taught that they're nothing more than random mutations of atoms, and therefore there's no such thing as actual right or wrong, and people can do whatever they want, but we need the gospel. We need a revival. That's what we need. What's the, what's the more specific? Look at verse 7. The accusation gets more specific than simply the world was changed upside down, was turned upside down. They say they're acting against the decrees of Caesar. And then it clarifies further the, the offense by saying they were saying that there's another king, Jesus. There's another king, Jesus. Now, this would be in a Roman colony, in a Roman town, this would be uh, a great offense in Rome because as Romans are obligated to profess Kaiser Curios, Caesar is Lord. You had to pinch the incense and say, Caesar is Lord. That's, that's the expectation for the Roman citizen. But what is Paul preaching? Jesus Curios, Jesus is Lord. And so as Paul preaches the lordship of Jesus, in first century Rome, there, there's, there's, there's no more of a political statement that you can make than Jesus is Lord, especially in first century Rome. I mean, that's, that's the most problematic political statement you can say is that there's another king, that there's another Lord. Jesus is Lord. And these Jews take advantage of this. Um, the Jews hate the Romans. Uh, make no mistake about that. But they, they hate the Christians more. And so they're willing to use the Romans. And, and they're going to they're gonna use that phrase, Jesus is Lord. And they, they know the Romans will, will catch on to this, will hang on to this, that the Romans will have to respond to this um, and, and act. And they do. They ransack the the Christian headquarters in Jason's house, probably this first church there, probably planted. But as we see, as, as offended as the Romans are of, of this statement that Jesus is Lord, as offended as they are, as, as is true of many situations, money talks. Sometimes money talks. Look at verse 9. And when they had taken some money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them... Go. So 
Paul, Silas, Timothy apparently dodged this house raid at Jason's house. Apparently either they escaped or they, they weren't there at the time. Jason and them get arrested. They pay some money. They're, they're out on bail in, in essence. Um, but, but the temperature has risen to such an, to such an extent um, in Thessalonica that the apostles have to move on from Thessalonica. They have to move on. And I thought I would just, before we leave Thessalonica... I put just a couple references from 1 Thessalonians, the letter Paul's going to write to them, simply just to tie in the book of Acts with the rest of the scriptures, just to tie it in with, with Paul's epistles. Um, just let me, let me just read these real quick. 1 Thessalonians 2.1, Paul's writing to this church, probably this church in Jason's house. Um, he says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, so he's referencing Acts chapter 16 that we studied last time, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. And then in in 1 Thessalonians 2.14, Paul says, For you, brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen, probably referring to the Jews stirring up the Romans to ransack their house and arrest them. Um, As they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. So there he references the fact that they get drove out of the city. But listen to the language. This is how Paul, as Paul's thinking about how to interpret people um, coming against him as he preaches the gospel. This is how Paul thinks about people who are, who are uh, suppressing the spread of the gospel. He goes on to say, they drove us out and therefore they displease God and they oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they might be saved, and so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. That's, that's heavy language if you think about, you know, seemingly somebody just being jealous and, and not wanting somebody to take their, you know, their church members from them. Uh, no, the way Paul interprets that is, is you're opposing all mankind. You're not doing anything good for those people by keeping them from the gospel. They think they're, oh, no, I'm, I'm the better teacher. I'm the right teacher. I know the Bible. You're not helping them. You're opposing them. You're keeping them from hearing the gospel so that they might be saved. So Paul writes this letter to this church. Obviously, a church was planted in Thessalonica. Obviously, it remained Paul's going to write two epistles to them. We'll actually come back to Thessalonica in Paul's third missionary journey, Lord willing, if we live that long. But let's move on to the, uh, let's try to go, I'm going to try to go quickly now. Let's move on to Berea. Let's move on to Berea, verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. They're they're moving west, farther west. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. 
They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing, as well as the men. And so Paul comes into Berea, the the famous Bereans. And the Bereans are famous for how they receive the word of God. What did it say, Paul? Uh, Luke says there's two things that made the Bereans more noble than the Thessalonians. Number one, it says they received the word with great eagerness and they examined the scriptures to see whether these things were so. So both things were present in the Bereans. This is what made them more, more noble. And it's kind of a very interesting balance here of, of godly ways that you're supposed to receive the word of God. Um, I think, and what I was going to hone in on here for is, is the need to be like the Bereans. Um, but I think, you know, if you think about falling into ditches, and this usually happens in churches like churches that care about doctrine, churches that care about theology, uh, churches that care about careful exegesis, in the ditches that we tend to fall in is we tend to try to be so like the Bereans that we're searching the scriptures to such an extent to make sure every single thing that preacher says is exactly right to the point, and I call it a ditch, because you can do that, and I've done that. I know exactly what, what I'm talking about. You can be so discerning, right, in your own mind, you're just scrupulously checking every single jot and tittle, that you're not receiving the word with all eagerness. But the, the Bereans did both. The Bereans received the word with all eagerness, but they also checked the scriptures. They were also discerning. They just didn't accept everything that was said. And so how do you maintain the Berean balance, as I'm calling it? First and foremost, I think, when, when for instance, when you come to church, first and foremost, on your mind needs to, needs to be a thankfulness to God that you even have a church to come to, that, that we have Bibles to even search. I mean, th- this, over the history of mankind in general, or even, the, even since the coming of Christ, to have a copy of the Scriptures is, it's a luxury, right? The fact that we can even search the Scriptures and see if what we're, this is, and something that's good for you, and I know I've mentioned it before because I remember mentioning it, but I mean, you can go to YouTube and you can find videos of, for instance, there, there's, there's tribes where, who have never had, they've had missionaries, they've heard the gospel, they're Christians, but they've never had the Bible translated into their uh, languages. And they have video of, uh, I'm not sure which society, uh, which missionary group translated for this. I'm thinking of one in particular. It's, it's just an amazing video to watch because you see how we should feel. You can see it. They're, they're feeling it. They still, this is still amazing that they have this. This is not amazing to us anymore. We're just, I've got a thousands of these. This is not crazy. It should be. Um, but there's video of these tribes with the plane coming in. They know this is the day we're going to receive our Bibles in our own language. We'll all have them. And these missionaries show up with boxes of Bibles and they, I mean, it's, it's, there's rejoicing. There's, 
I mean, it's a ceremony. They're singing, they're, they're crying, they're thanking God, they're praying because they get, and they get Bibles and they're reading them. It's, it's, we need to watch those things. Like That's what we need to see to remember how thankful we should be for even having the Bible, being thankful that we can come to a church like this where, where we, this is, a, this is a good, safe place to, to hear the Bible taught, right? Like, you should not be uneasy, right? This is, we have unity in the gospel. We have unity in, in a Christ-centered view of the scriptures. We have unity in the solas of the Reformation, all of these primary doctrines. Like, you should come to church excited. Not that, oh, I might hear something, you know, Jason's going to say something weird about Galatia or something. You know, that's not what you should be thinking. You should be, oh, wow, we get to hear the word of God preached today. That's, that's what we should be thinking. And, and then, of course, there's a time, there's, of course, a time and a place to check, check what we're saying. But the primary reception of the Bereans was to start with receiving the word with all eagerness. And there's a lot more I could say about that, for, but for time, for time's sake, I won't. So Paul goes to the synagogue in Berea. He preaches. The constant pattern uh, happens again. Look, who, look who's coming behind Paul, verse 13. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was being proclaimed by Paul at Berea, also they came there too agitating and stirring up the crowds. And so this is the constant pattern. God's working, Paul's being faithful, but Satan is at this point literally chasing after him. And so application for this reality is that don't be discouraged. When the gospel is going forward, when you're attempting to minister the the word of God, the gospel, in whatever capacity you do that, First of all, don't be surprised that the enemy comes. Don't be surprised that there's trouble. Don't be surprised that it's hard. Don't be surprised that people don't believe. Um, This is what Satan is looking for, people who were in the fight. That's who he's going to fight against. So don't be surprised by that. And the same thing happens to Paul here. So not only is he coming to new towns, having to deal with the Jew and the opposition there, now he's worried about people running up from behind him from the previous towns, chasing him down. So he's getting it from the front and from the back. Never does it phase him. Paul continues, but he is ultimately forced out of Berea, verse 14 and 15. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way by the sea. Silas and Timothy remained there. And those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So we'll we'll pick up there next time. Paul is arriving in Athens after being kicked out of Berea. Um, He's in Athens. Now he's going to be there. He's going to be waiting for the other apostles and missionaries are following after him. They're going to come visit him, but he's there by himself right now. He's in Athens. This is the the city that has that long history of being known as the intellectual, the philosophical elites are from Athens. That's where Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, these guys are from. And that's where Paul's going to be stirred up. He's going to enter what, what many have referred to as Mars. He's going to give that sermon on Mars Hill, one of his famous sermons. We'll look at 
next time. And it's going to be not to the Jews, but to primarily just a pagan audience. And so we'll, really the work and the job is, is if you're preaching through uh, Mars Hill's sermon, is, is looking at the, the distinctions, the differences that Paul uh, implements to how does, he, how does he preach to the pagan versus how does he preach as we've been seeing to the Jews. So that's, that's an interesting difference there. We'll, but next time we'll see Paul preach to the pagans. So let's, let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you again for your word, Lord. We thank you that we have our Bibles, Lord. We pray that you would watch over us, Lord, the preaching and the teaching, Lord. Just give us grace as we prepare. Give us grace when we speak. Just bless the hearing of your word, Lord. I pray you would stir us all up, whether it's me or whoever's teaching, Lord, that, that we would show up with great eagerness to hear the word, Lord. Let us stir ourselves up, Lord, to be encouraged to come to church, to be thankful we have somewhere to come hear the word of God preached, Lord, the fellowship, the supper, all these things, Lord. I pray for baptisms, Lord. I pray that you would save souls through the preaching of your word, Lord, that we would that we would have the privilege of figuring out how it is we're going to bab- baptize somebody, Lord. Um, give us that, that problem. Lord, we um, pray you'll just bless our fellowship today. Lord, bless our taking of your supper. In Jesus' name, amen.